Kyle Coleman is the king of a cold email. And so one of the things is not only was he one of the most popular episodes out there, but there are a couple things that I permanently use today in my cold email sequences now. Most importantly, I used to have all these different second emails, the bubble up emails, which as you all know, the first email gets some good replies, but the second one is the most popular. And I used to do things like, oh, I just called you. Did you get my last note? Did you see that last note and all that stuff? And now literally my second touch every time is just thoughts. And literally my reply rates went up an additional 5% after that. What else did we learn from that one? One of the big things he talked about was the art of the segue, where you hear a lot about personalization and how do I personalize an email? But the thing is, if I just send an email to Armand where I'm like, hey, man, I saw you were a wrestler. You want to buy some lead generation software? It's like there's sort of a disconnect. And what Kyle talked about was creating a connection or a bridge between the research about the human being that you're reaching out to connected to the business problem. And one of my favorite examples, Kyle talked about small but mighty. And Armand has a corgi, which I actually see in the background of his video right now. What a cute puppy. But he talked about how Clary was small but mighty, just like a corgi. And that's a message that Armand would respond to. And so the art of the segue was something I pulled out there because I don't want these, these crappy, hey, I saw you went to went to UCLA, go Bruins, want to buy some workflow software? It's just awkward. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? 
And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. All right, Kyle, welcome to the show. We are really excited to talk with you today. We start every single show with your top three actionable sales tips. So let's get your three. What's number one? All right, number one, you have to build your muscle for personalization. It's I know there's a lot out there about what personalization is, but a pretty easy rule to live by is what I call the five by five by five rule. And what this means is you do five minutes of research on a person or on an account. You find five pieces of information, five insights about that person or account, and then you spend five minutes writing that message. And what this allows you to do is it allows you to actually scale personalization because you're taking the time once to do all the research that you need to do in order to write a whole series of personalized outreach. So five by five by five, five minutes of research, five insights, five minutes of writing, do it all over again. Love it. What's number two, Kyle? Number two, a Chris Voss special. You have to get comfortable in any sales role, SDR, inside sales, enterprise sales, get comfortable mirroring. This is when you're handling an objection, just repeat the last few words that the prospect just said to you, repeat it back to them. So when they say, you know, I'm not interested, just say, not interested and see what happens. It's incredible when you just mirror those last couple words and just shut up and allow them to talk the amount of information that they will give you. So get comfortable mirroring. Love that one. Round us out. What's number three, Kyle? Number three, time is your most precious asset. And if you want to get something done, you have to schedule it. Like use your calendar to actually schedule your days out. Take it seriously and then abide by those blocks that you set for yourself. And if you need a little methodology for prioritization, There's something called the Eisenhower matrix that Dwight D. Eisenhower, former president, Nick, for your edification, that he used in order to prioritize how he went about doing things. And it's this simple two by two grid where you chart things by how important they are and how urgent they are. And that will help you determine, is this something you do yourself? Is this something you schedule for later? Is this something you delegate to somebody else? Or is this something that you just completely don't do because it's not important and it's not urgent? So don't be busy for the sake of being busy, be busy and also be productive. And you have to do that with intent. Kyle, that was a phenomenal top three. That was one of the best ones we've had. I want to dig into this five by five by five thing because it's really quite interesting. So I'm listening to this. I'm hearing it. I've written it down. How do I actually go out and put this into practice? I need to open up my sales force. I'm looking at my accounts. Like, Can you walk me through the gritty details around that, like what that looks like? Yeah, for sure. It depends a lot on what the person reveals about themselves on various social channels. And I'm not just talking about LinkedIn either. I'm talking about Twitter. I'm talking about Facebook, whatever you can find on a person. Some people are, are more forthcoming about their personal life than others. So if you can find literal personal things about them, like you can't spell personalization without personal. If you can find personal things about that person, where did they grow up? What sports teams are they fans of? What charities do they care about? If you can find things about them and then gear your opening parts of your written communication via email or LinkedIn or whatever it is around those things, that's the key to the castle. That's what's differentiated. My definition of personalization is that you couldn't send that same message to another person and it still makes sense. If you can abide by that rule, then you've actually created a personalized message. One of the tricks you can use, I believe both Outreach and Sales Loft have this functionality, is you can go and see as you're dialing somebody, you can pull up the last email that you sent them. 
And if you've done a good job of layering your tailoring in each email, you can be like, boom, in my last email, I called out the fact that you have a Corgi Kyle, right? And so you can constantly have the emails mirror the voicemails, which is another thing you talk about a lot, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like personalization is also meant to be done in every channel that you're using in your outreach. So a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to, I'll write the personal email, but I'm just going to leave the same templated voicemail. And that's a big mistake. Like you want your messaging to be consistent across all the channels that you're using. So the voicemails that you leave, talk about the same bits of research that you uncovered, make it personal about them. Same is true with like the videos that you send. Use all that research in all the different channels that you're pursuing. And that maximizes the familiarity that they have with you and maximizes their chance of responding. So we haven't talked about voicemail strategy a ton because everyone wants to get into like the gritty cold call, right? And so what is your voicemail strategy? How does your first, second, third voicemail change? And then what does it actually sound like? How do you layer in tailoring into your voicemails? Very similar to an outbound email. In fact, if you've written a good outbound email, you should be able to just read it. And it makes sense to be a voicemail. It should be short. It should be no fewer or no more than about 125 words is sort of the rule of thumb that translates to somewhere between 30 and 60 seconds of talk time. And you should put your personalization up front in that email. So before introducing yourself or what you do, you should let them know why you're calling and try and make sure that you get that personalization in first, because they're probably going to not listen through the whole thing if you lead with whatever it is about yourself first. Gotcha. And so how many voicemails do you typically leave? Do you leave one every single time or is there a certain cadence you have there? The intent of leaving voicemails is not to get a callback all the time. It is a piece of the familiarity of the awareness pie. And so why I always encourage people to leave a voicemail the first time they call for sure, because so many people now are not going to answer the phone when they don't know who's calling. And so if you call them and you leave a voicemail, very likely that they'll either listen to the voicemail or they'll at least view the transcript if it's on their iPhone and it gets transcripted. So that's nice. Don't leave a voicemail every time though. You, you, you just don't have time for that. I would say maybe alternate is, is kind of the guidance that I give where one time you leave a voicemail, the next time you don't, the next time you do, and you, you go that route. Yeah. We tested something really similar where I think what we landed at is a max of three voicemails. Because if you've left like seven voicemails, eventually it's like you're just wasting your time talking to yourself. But the first one, we would do exactly what you're talking about, where we would lead with context and we would stop. And so if our buyer trigger was, we work with a number of similar portfolio companies in the healthcare space, we would literally pick up the phone, basically say that and say, call me back without doing the whole pitch. 15 seconds, just get the context because they're like, oh, that's interesting. And then they'll go look at your email. And then the next voicemail, you can do the full pitch. Yeah, yeah, I love that. A tactic that worked really well for me was that my follow-up email, after I left a voicemail, the subject line is voicemail. That's it. So subject line voicemail, a line or two about, hey, just give you a call, must have missed you, insert your personalization again, hoping to catch you sometime soon. That's it. Huge open rate, huge response rate. And again, the goal of leaving voicemail is not necessarily only to get a call back. It's to show them that like, hey, man, I'm not going to leave you alone (laughs) until you respond to me one way or the other. So I'm coming at you from all these different channels. Like, please give me a response. Yeah. On that note, can you talk a little bit about subject lines? Because I've been trying to strike the right balance between getting opens and replies, but also not being spammy. I know I can be super spammy and put something weird in the subject line and get an open, but... I want to come across as like a relevant business professional, but I also need to get replies. What's your strategy around subject lines? I abide by the rule that 
subject lines and the first lines of your email should be working in tandem with one another. And the reason for that is because every single email client now will preview both the subject line as well as the first line or two. It's about 25 words of your email. And so you want your subject line to be as short as possible so that you can maximize the real estate for that first line of your email, which is personalized, right? The kind of guidance that I give is your subject lines, and this takes practice, this takes time, and it takes a little bit of, uh, of chutzpah here to pull off, but subject lines between one and three words is like kind of the gold standard for what you're trying to do. And if you can have that subject line bleed into the first line of your email, you're in really good shape. What do you mean by that? Armand, you mentioned that I have a corgi. And so something, I think probably one of the best personalized emails I've ever gotten was for a competitor of outreach and of sales loft. And their subject line was small, but mighty. And I was like, what is that all about? And I saw the the initial, the first line in their email was like a corgi, we are small, but mighty when we're going up against giants like XYZ. And so it bled into the things that their value prop their positioning against competitors, as well as things that are personal to me. And so if you can find a way to do that, that's kind of the key to the castle to get people to open and engage. So that's helpful because my issue with the personalization thing has always been like, hey, Armand, you went to USC, fight on. By the way, I want to sell you business intelligence software. (laughs) And he's like, these don't connect. And it's like, to me, that seems all right. Like you just did this to get my attention. So this person did something different. They blended the personalization with the message. Is that what you're having your teams do? Yeah, it's what we call the segue and mastering the art of this segue. First of all, very hard. And second of all, very useful. (laughs) So I see a lot of advice from other sorts of people on LinkedIn, where they're really inelegant about the way they transition from that personalized bit of research to their value prop, where like, they'll make a suggestion that says, personalized line goes here. And then here's how you segue. Here comes the annoying sales pitch. And that drives me crazy. Like, I just think that's such a waste of time because it's it's unprofessional. It's not smooth. It's just another sales pitch. So if you can take the time to really think about your value prop and you can be creative about the way you transition into that value prop, that is what will differentiate you. It's hard to do. And that's what makes you stand out from the crowd. That's what the Corgi thing did is... Look, the fact that you have a Corgi has absolutely nothing to do with sales automation. But I got a similar email that was, uh, I was a college wrestler and, and Nick and I were actually on the same team. And the guy's title was wrestling with your reps. I'm like, what the f- was that? And so I opened it and he was talking, he like had a picture of me wrestling and he was like, you ever try to wrestle your reps into hitting the phones? And they're just like not making their cold calls. I know what that's like, man. And he did such a good segue. That ability to not just say like, boom, you are a college wrestler. We sell cold calling tools and tie it together. Like that's an art and that's difficult. But when it's done well, man, it stands out. I remember every single email like that. Exactly. When it's seamlessly done, it makes a huge difference. And again, it makes you stand out. And so we've to kind of build this muscle on our sales team and with our SDR team, we templated a few different ways that you can segue based on different tactics that we were running. So we ran a direct mail campaign back before everybody was working from home and could actually direct mail people without being creepy and asking their home address. We would send people mugs, coffee mugs from their alma mater. So this is a very scalable and very personalized way to do this outreach. And then the way that we segued in our messaging was that sales leaders like yourself are starting their days with coffee and with Clary. And one thing that's important to note is a lot of people, there are two polls. And one poll is like, you should start every email with 
dear or hello, comma, and you should never even say hey. And then there's the other end of the spectrum that's like, I'm going to send you the you're stuck under a rock and an alligator is about to eat you, you email. And that's also horrible. Both of those are awful. And so what you're doing is you're still showing some personality. You're getting somebody to smile, but you're doing it through great research. And that's the perfect balance that I think a lot of reps fail to properly address. Right, exactly. And I think a lot of reps also when they're starting, especially younger reps right out of college, I found, feel this strange inclination to be way too formal in the way that they write and speak with people that are five years older than them (laughs) making decisions at these companies. It's so strange. And and what I try and tell them is be professional always, but never feel like you have to be formal. You should be speaking to somebody like you would actually talk. And so another tip that I would give that I do give people is read your emails out loud before you send them. Like literally read them out loud. You're going to feel like a crazy person, but you're working from home. Nobody can hear you anyway. Read them out loud. You'll find that a couple things. One, you're very likely saying I way too much. If you hear yourself saying I more than you or I or we, you're doing something wrong. So eliminate those I's. But also use language that you would use when you're speaking. Because again, if you write this email well, it's not just an email. It's also it can become your voicemail script and it can become all these things and it should be you and the way that you speak. So I think it's a really useful tip. Like talk to them like you'd talk to them at a happy hour, not like you're a formal in a bank and you're afraid and you're trying to get a loan. So the same thing applies. I mean, you see us texting back and forth all the time and these are really organic messages. And one of the things we talk about too is like, if you ever remember like that massive wall of text that you got from your crazy ex, that it shows desperation. And so your emails should look very similar. They should be short. They should be conversational. And so Kyle, you put some great content out there. And one thing that is particular about your content is it's extremely intentionally formatted. And so do you have any tips around how you actually format or structure an email from the body standpoint? Yes, for sure. So I mentioned it before, but 125 words is the limit. And way easier said than done. 125 words. And the reason for that is because so much consumption now is happening on your mobile phone. And if it's less than mobile phone, I sound 100 years old. Um, (laughs) (laughs) When somebody's looking at your email on their phone, you get one scroll and that's it. And if your message is more than 125 words, you're going to make them scroll a bunch of times and you're going to lose them. So 125 word limit. And use white space. People who write, and I know Armand, this is near and dear to your heart, but people who write huge blocks of text, why? Like if it reads like a tome, like Moby Dick, like nobody's going to read it. The way that I think about things is separate thoughts go on separate lines. Every time you're making a different point or you're asking for something different or you want them to, to read something new in your email, it should be on a new line that's separated with white space. And the reason for that is because the way that our brains work is we scan, we scroll. And so if you want them to see the key points of every message, you need to make it very easy for them to scan and consume and digest quickly. We've talked about subject line email, but we haven't talked about email to email. And so what's the spacing typically between calls and emails? How hard are you hitting someone? How many touches over how many days? What I try and do is I never send or think that it's wise to send people more than two written messages per week. I think that's just landed on a little too thick. Typically, what we'll do is we'll do a email on day one. I always like to email first before calling 
I don't think in this day and age, it's ever wise to do any like literal cold calling. I think you can always manufacture warmth in some way. So what we do to manufacture this warmth is we send the first email. It's educational. It's content driven, very light call to action. Just, hey, putting clarity on your radar. Here's a piece of content that sales leaders like you find interesting. And then we'll go on LinkedIn and stalk them in a very friendly way, trying to see what they're posting, what they're all about, engaging with some of their content in a genuine way genuinely engaging with content and then making a call either on the same day as that first email or on the next day, then following up via email three to five days later as a chain, as a thread to that first note. And that I know it sounds super simple, but we have, I think the email that we send that gets the best response rate is that second email that's threaded to the first. And all it is, is one word thoughts, question mark thoughts. That's good. And we get a huge, huge response rate to that. And this is, again, the way you scale your personalized outreach. You've already written a personalized email. That's your first touch. It's content-driven. It's a light ask. And you're following up with thoughts. Thoughts? And just see what they have to say. And then you kind of repeat that cadence as you go. No more than two written pieces of correspondence per week between email and LinkedIn is kind of my general rule of thumb. It could go up to three, but I definitely no more than three. Yeah, it's other than that, it's just spamming people. But it's such an interesting point because we have the exact same thing where the second email, for whatever reason, it just pops the reply rate. And it's something, especially salespeople tend to appreciate it. You guys are selling into sales leaders. And so I've I've had people that I've been reaching out to for the podcast when I follow up two or three times, they're like, oh, that's what I like to see. And then they get on. There's something about that psychology of like, okay, this person's actually trying to get in touch with me. One other thing that we didn't talk about is the the layering in of LinkedIn connections and touches. And you've obviously got this big brand now. And so are your reps using LinkedIn messaging or in-mails at scale? Or do you find that that takes too much time? Absolutely. Yes, they're using them, but not for every prospect. This is a whole new rabbit hole that I'm opening up here. So forgive me, but we segment our prospects into what we call above the line and below the line. Above the line prospects are ones that have decision-making authority, typically. Normally, that tracks pretty tightly with seniority. Below the line, people we still want to speak with, and they're still important, but they probably don't have decision-making authority. They're use case champions. They may be influential, but ultimately, they're not going to be the one signing the deal. And so we focus all of everything that we've talked about so far, all of the personalization, we focus entirely on folks who are above the line. For the folks that are below the line, we understand their day-to-day more. We know their pains. We know how Clary helps solve those pains. And so the automated stuff that's going out to them is very much applicable versus the higher level people that are more senior, who have less day-to-day type things that we understand, who have more of a strategic vision, who are tighter with the corporate strategy. So we need to understand what the company is trying to do so that we can message around what both what the company is doing and what that sales leader is doing at that company. So that was a bit of an aside, but all of the LinkedIn messaging that we're doing is for those people who are above the line. And again, same sort of thing, like one LinkedIn message or connection request per week, roughly, as it relates to the rest of the kind of outbound cadence that we have going. A lot of people forget that. They'll ask, how much do you tailor your emails or how much time do you spend researching? And there's there's not one answer because if it's a bottom tier prospect, then you don't spend a lot of time. It's the golden prospect that's your $10 million deal you're going to send them some really, really good stuff. And so I love how you guys are tearing that out too. Yeah. And the kind of the rule of thumb or the guidance that we give the team is that you should roughly, roughly, this is going to change for every company, but I would suggest if any sales or SDR leaders are listening, you should have 
guidance for how many prospects you have actively cadenced sequenced at any time. If you as a sales or SDR team or leader are using outreach or sales loft, you have to give your team guidance on how many prospects they should have actively engaged. So we give guidance that you should have somewhere between 800 and 1,000 people actively engaged at all times and roughly 15 or 20%, let's call it 20% of those people should be above the line. So those are the kind of 150 to 200 people that you're paying really close attention to that you're executing these high touch tactics against. And the rest of them are automated and are happening in the background. So if we back that out, you talked about blocking your calendar effectively. And to get that many, it's not like on day one, boom, 800. And now let me just hit them for the next three weeks, right? And so how do you suggest reps block their calendar so that their prospecting time is aligned with those targets? We are very intentional about the ramp time that we give new SDRs and new salespeople. And the ramp that we build is very much a learn by doing ramp schedule. So throughout the course of their ramp, they're spending time shadowing top performers, they're spending time with their managers, and they're doing the work, they're building their prospect list without doing any outreach. They're just building that prospect list. And then every week from there on out, we have an expectation that you're adding new 50 to 100 new leads at the top of your funnel so that as people weed themselves out, you're constantly keeping yourself refreshed to avoid the peaks and valleys that would otherwise come from you doing everything at once and then running out of people to to contact and then having to totally refill the pipe. So Kyle, we could go on for hours and hours and hours about prospecting, but this is by far the most we've gone into cold emailing tactics out of any guests that we've had. And so we've talked about a lot of the good habits out there, but we always like to talk about things that we need to stop doing right away. And so if there is one thing that every sales rep needed to stop doing right now, what would that be? Stop making calls for the sake of making calls or doing any sort of metric for the sake of the vanity metric. If you are doing anything, making calls, sending emails, any part of your job, that's just for the sake of looking good on a dashboard, you are not thinking. And this role, SDR, inside sales, sales in general, is so much more strategic than it used to be that you owe it to yourself to carve out time for that strategy, for that quality-oriented, research-driven outreach. Three, two, one, send your emails. All right, Kyle, welcome back to the show. You know we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. Number one, write a lot. People don't write enough. They don't practice writing. And so what I think a a really effective exercise is, is to go to your company's website, look at the About Us page, and transform what you see there into an outbound email. Don't copy and paste. Don't highlight the text and drop it into your email. Rewrite it and practice this over and over and over again. Look at advertisements that you like the structure of and try and match that cadence, that tone, that style, the feeling of that advertisement copy in your email writing, and then test it. Write a lot, test everything, analyze it, and continually write. If you do that, you'll find success. Beautiful. What's number two, Kyle? Number two, be ruthless with your time. Be really, really intentional about how you're spending, not every minute of every day, because that can be a little bit overwhelming, but certainly in half-hour blocks or hour blocks, start the day knowing what you need to get done. And be really intentional about structuring your day in order to get those things done. If you can do that, that is the key to productivity. If you enter the day without a plan, if you're not ruthless about your time, if you say yes to everything that comes your way, you're not going to get the important things done. So be ruthless with your time. Love it. What's number three, Kyle? Round us out. Number three, reflect regularly. Every day is 
cool for some people. Every week is my preferred cadence. And so what I do is every Monday, I write down the top three things that if I get to Friday and I have accomplished those three things, it'll be a good week. And I reflect on it. What went well? What didn't? Did I get all three things done? If not, why not? If so, yes. What else was I able to take on as a result? What was the impact here? What should I change going into next week? And if you're, in, especially if you're in sales, you always have to be really critical of what's working and what isn't. And again, if you're not intentional about setting time aside to reflect on what's working and what isn't, you're not going to improve. So reflect regularly, find the cadence that works for you and watch the improvement happen. There we go. And Kyle, in our last episode, we hit on everything cold emails. And honestly, we're going to hit on it again, because more recently, you've been responding to every single cold email that's coming your way. And so to start at the high level, are there some common themes that you've been able to abstract of things that have and have not gone well in some of the cold emails that you've seen? Oh, Armand. Yes, there are many things that I've noticed that uh, are not going super well. And I would say if I had to put a number on it, about 90% of the cold emails that I get are hot garbage. They are just not good. And the main reason for it relates to my point number one and my three things here is that it seems like most people just rely on their marketing team or on their management team to write the emails for them. And the market marketing team, by definition, are very good at writing marketing emails and marketing copy and emails and copy that are useful for people that are seeking you or, you or your company out. So if somebody comes to my company's website, they are looking for information about my company. But when I'm reaching out cold to somebody, they don't give a, a hoot about my company because I haven't shown them that it matters, that they should care. So that's that's the biggest mistake that I see is that most people are not lazy necessarily, but they don't think about how big a difference it is between what an inbound lead wants and what an outbound lead expects. And so they'll take the copy that exists on clary.com slash about us, and they'll copy that into their outbound email. And they say, all right, my work here is done. And they think that that's a good email, but it isn't. And we can unpack the reasons why, but man, that one thing is a huge, huge deal. I'm a huge stickler for marketing speak. In other words, things that sound like newspaper articles where emails start with lawyers hate working on expenses. And it's just like a statement to the world. So how do I translate the problems that you get in marketing speak to something that sounds like a human at scale? Yes, it does need to sound like something a human would actually say. And the litmus test for this, I think, that I've heard, which is really useful, is if you're having coffee with somebody at a trade show, how are you explaining it to them? You're probably not going to say that they're going to get a 360-degree view of their customer. You're probably going to say something like, they understand everything that their customers are doing. And that is a human way to translate the marketing jargon that works when somebody's seeking you out or works to be punchy or differentiated from a marketing standpoint. It actually makes it work in a human conversation. So be really mindful about translating that marketing jargon to human speak. Um, now, your point about how to do this, how to do the intro lines or how to write the emails in a way that doesn't come across as a marketing line that you would see in an email or, or on their website. And the way that I uh, think is really useful to do this, especially in an email, is to start your opening line with some semblance of personalization. And personalization does not necessarily mean, hey, Nick, I know you went to USC. How about them Trojans? Like, yeah, it's cool if you can weave in the literal personal things about that, that person's background or interests or hobbies or whatever, but you don't have to do that for every company. Instead, if I said, hey, Nick, 
saw that you just hired 20 new salespeople. How are you thinking about onboarding all of them? Or how are you going to make sure they're all as productive as possible, as quickly as possible? How are you going to accelerate their ramp time? How are you going to ensure that they're hitting their revenue targets as quickly as possible? Um, and so those types of firmographic personalizations are just as effective. And they're all readily available for anybody that has LinkedIn Premium. You can just go to the Insights page uh, or the Insights tab on somebody's on a company's About Us page. And you can see all the hiring trends, people they brought on, all those sorts of things. So start with that kind of insight about the person, if possible, about the company, if, if you want to. And that's how you'll start to open people's eyes and say, okay, this email is written to me. And so now I'm going to care more about the pain points that the person identifies or the solution that they identify, because I know they've written this email for me. So Kyle, can you take us from the very top of the email, right? Subject line, first line, body, you've got call to action. I know you have opinions on each. So can you talk about, let's start with the subject line. What are the best practices there? What should people be doing? The subject line should be no more than four words. Uh, the sweet spot is one to three words, four is an absolute max. I think the character count is somewhere in like 50 or 55 characters. And the, the reason for this is because when a person is viewing your email in their email client on their phone, on their Gmail, on the desktop, whatever, they see three things. They see who the sender is. There's nothing you can do about that unless you change your name, I guess. Um, they see the subject line, which we're talking about now. And importantly, they see the preview line. The preview line is the first line or two of your email, about the first 20 words of your email. They see that in the preview line. So if you, before even opening the email. So if your email subject line is 20 words long, then you're not allowing them to see that first line of your email, which as previously discussed is personalized. So you're, you're just cannibalizing that really important real estate for no reason, for no reason at all. Um, so really focus on keeping that subject line short. And if possible, it should be related to that first line in your email. So Nick, in the, in the example I gave before, if my opening line of the email is, saw that you hired 20 new sales staff over the last six months, congrats. Then my subject line should be hiring quickly. Simple as that. You know, one to three words, just something that has to do with the first line that's going to pique their interest, that segues nicely or transitions nicely into that first line of the email that allows them to see the subject line and that first line of the email before opening the email. So Kyle, I think this is spot on, just enough to pique the interest. But what you're not doing to the point earlier is you're not saying things like automate your lead routing as your four words, right? No marketing, advertising, no selling whatsoever, just enough to get the open. That's right. Yeah. In that example, Armand, automate your lead routing with or automate company token names lead routing with my company's name. You'll see that a lot. Automate Clary's lead routing with lean data. And that's garbage. It's so bad. Like, don't do that. That's useful for a landing page, like a personalized landing page. If I went to leandata.com slash Clary and I saw that, I'd be like, oh, cool. This is for me. It's not good for an outbound email because again, I'm not seeking this information out. So instead of automate Clary's lead routing with lean data, just do lead routing. That's your subject line, as simple as that. And then in the first line should be something to do with, hey, notice you just hired a new head of demand generation. Imagine you're expanding your, your lead gen efforts. What are you doing to make sure that all the leads get in the right hands of the right reps at the right time? Simple as that. So um, take that complex tokenized subject line and just distill it down to the most important parts of that subject line. And you're gonna find, you're gonna get way more opens if nothing else. So Kyle, in that example, I know I'm sort of skipping around the email here. Your call to action was not a meeting. 
It was a question about the process that you could help with. Can you talk about the call to action a little bit? Yeah, this is probably the biggest mistake from a tactical, how the email is written, tail of the tape sort of of way is people on a first email or second or third email, they're asking for somebody's time. And I know Armand and Nick, you, you both have talked about this before with various guests and Gong's data on this is unassailable. They, they did a huge study with billions or millions, I can't remember, of data points. And they found that on a cold email, if you're asking for somebody's time, you are shooting yourself in the foot. You are reducing the response rate by, I can't even remember the, the amount, but it's a huge reduction in response rate. Instead, the recommended path forward to get better results is to ask interest or curiosity-based calls to action or provide those calls to action. So instead of, can we spend 30 minutes to talk about this? It's, are you interested in learning more? Or let me know if you're curious to see more. It's what Josh Braun calls a low friction ask. There's not a lot of skin in the game for somebody. And it's piquing their curiosity, as you mentioned before, Nick. It's saying, are if you're interested in anything that I just said above, let me know. Happy to provide more information. So really focus on those interest-based or curiosity-based calls to action. And really, truly, as simple as, are you interested in learning more? Are you curious to see more? If you just go with those two subject lines, you're going to find you're going to get far, far more responses. And because the point is creating conversations, the point is not to get meetings. I'm going to repeat that for everybody who's on a meeting-based quota. The point is not to get meetings. The point is to create conversations. And so that is what these interest-based calls to action do. They allow you to have more back and forths, to build more relationships, to earn more meetings eventually. So play a bit of a longer game here and ensure that you're positioning yourself as somebody who's going to be educating the people that you're reaching out to and genuinely helping them. And you'll find more success. So what's the approach here? They email me back and they say, I am interested in learning more. Do I now email back and forth with them five or six times to the point where it's like, all right, it makes sense to get on a call? Or what's the best practice when they say, yes, (laughs) Yes, I'm interested in learning more. Um, It's a really good question, Nick. My favorite approach to this is, what's the best way that you learn? Are you more of somebody who likes to watch a video and and learn by watching, uh, seeing the product in action? Are you more of a reader? You want to study the white paper? You want to know the technical details? Which are you, A or B? Let me know. And if they, you know, depending on how they respond, if they say, yeah, I'm more of a video type person. I want to see something in action, you say, great, we've got all those videos for you. I can, I'll send them over, or we can do a live call with one of our product experts. You can get all of your questions answered in real time as you see this product tour. Is that something that'd be better for you? Would that expedite your learning? Um, so that's the type of way that, that I typically handle it. It adds a little bit of back and forth, but again, you're trying to position yourself as somebody who actually cares about the prospect. And so you're saying, what's the best, what, how do you prefer to learn? Let me know. We've got all the resources. And just see what they say. And you can go from there. So you have the subject line. You have your intro paragraph. And in that intro paragraph, to go back there, it sounds like you even have a question in that intro. Is that right? Not all the time, Armand, but more often than not, it typically lends itself to like you're asking a rhetorical question so that you're teeing yourself up for the response. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a nice little device just to allow the email to flow pretty well. Um, so if that is useful for you, by all means, include that question in the first in the first line. And so again, let's let's write this email for for Nick, who in this imaginary world is leading a sales team. I know very unlikely 
but we'll, you know, <laughs> suspend your disbelief momentarily. So Nick is a sales leader. He has just hired uh, 20 new staff over six months. We found that insight on LinkedIn. We, our subject line is hiring quickly. And then the first line is, hey, Nick or Nick. Um, hey, hi, hello. I don't care. Just don't say dear sir or madam. Um, we won't belabor that one. So, hey, Nick, saw that you just hired 20 new sales staff. What are you going to do? Make sure you're coaching them all to hit quota. Whatever you're, you know, in this solution, in this scenario, we're selling clarity. So bear with me. Then the second line needs to be some sort of challenge that the Nicks of the world, the sales leadership personas of the world care about. So as companies are scaling their processes, things often break. How are you going to make sure your forecasting process keeps up? So that's another question for him. So we're saying, hey, you just hired a bunch of people and we're implying a lot here. So we're, we don't necessarily have to call out explicitly every single thing that we know Nick is experiencing in this new world with 20 new sales reps that he's really hyper-focused on making his number. We don't need to call out everything. We just need to say something provocative, like your current system is going to break. Now we're not going to say that, but we're implying it by saying, as companies scale, processes that had gotten them there tend to break down. What are you doing to ensure that doesn't happen to your forecasting cadence? You know, something like that. So we're showing him a challenge that either exists currently or that will exist in a future state. We're also implying that I know what the heck I'm talking about because I'm working with other sales leaders where I've gleaned this insight. This is not something that should come as a surprise to Nick. This shows him that I hopefully can be some sort of trusted advisor to him. So I'll stop there. The challenge that Nick is facing or is likely going to face, showcasing that I understand his universe and showing him that he can trust that the information that I have is going to be useful for him. So this is going to be really in the weeds. But one thing I always struggled with, Kyle, is I was always like, I need to personalize and describe the problem in the first body of text. And then I need to describe how I solve the problem in the second and then ask in the third. And it was always, I mean, this sounds in the weeds, but it was always hard for me to stuff both personalization and the problem that they'll face in one paragraph, in, in one sentence, right? And so it sounds like the total email, you're actually breaking personalization and the problem into two separate bodies of text. And my guess is the whole email is going to be around four. Is that right? That's right. Exactly, Armand. So one or two lines, personalization, introducing the fact that I know something that's going on in Nick's universe. Paragraph number two, again, one or two lines, one or two sentences, not more than that, showing Nick that I understand a challenge he's going to face. And then the next line is showing him the solution or potential solution that my product or service or our company is offering. And then the, the call to action, as we mentioned, can either be baked into that third line, Armand, or it can be called out separately as a fourth line. But, but that's basically it. And this all can be done pretty easily in 50 to 100 words. So one of the things that reps tend to struggle with is they, their solutions do so many different things. Clary doesn't help with only forecasting. You help with Salesforce data entry. You help with, obviously, the forecasting piece. Like There's a lot that goes in there. And so do I just give the high level? Do I just give one problem that you solve? Do I save some of those problems in the bag for future emails down in the sequence? How do you describe Clary in a succinct way that's still crisp enough that it actually resonates with a real problem? Yeah, it's a great question, Armand. And this is something that people struggle with, especially marketing people when they're writing outbound emails is they say, we can do everything end to end 360 degrees. And then they'll have seven bullet points about all the different things that they do. And it's like, that's not useful for an outbound email. Because again, 
the usefulness of the research that I've done about Nick is I understand that he has something that's really top of mind and he has some acute pains for whatever he and his company are experiencing right now. And I want to address as best I can that acute pain in as simple a language, as succinct a way as I possibly can. And I can hit on that in a couple of different ways, as you mentioned, Nick, like we just talked about the scenario where we're talking about Nick's forecasting process breakdown, but let's talk about data entry. So it's the same sort of cadence for the email. Hey, Nick, you just hired 20 new people. How are you going to ensure that everything that needs to get into Salesforce is actually getting into Salesforce? Reps, not famous for their data entry skills. Clary automates all of that for you, giving your sellers back time to sell so that you're bringing as much revenue as possible. Let me know if you're interested in learning more. One key point at a time, one salient challenge that Nick is facing, one partial solution of what Clary brings to the table. And it's allowing you to build a cadence or build a sequence that builds uh, on itself so that it's kind of like this pyramid where you're setting a foundation of awareness and then you're getting more and more pointed about what your solution can do. And that's really, really a, a useful way to design a sequence is by calling out one specific thing, one specific challenge and solution in each touch point. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other elements that are present in an email? And what I mean by that is like the structure, the formatting, things like bullets and bold and italics, uh, what you're doing with stuff like links and, and your stance on stuff like attachments. As a general rule, the larger the company that you're targeting, the fewer external elements you should include in your email. Enterprise companies have stronger gates that allow external emails to come through. So try and avoid any images. I'm typically not going to be a big gift guy in my outbound emails. That's a personal preference. Do your thing. Um, attachments are a no, no more than two links is going to set you up for email deliverability issues. And this is particular to enterprise, uh, accounts. So, you know, companies over call it a thousand employees tend to have some sort of these guardrails in place. So focus on deliverability. And again, this should be part of your AB test that you're doing same exact email, one with three links, one with zero see what happens. Email open rates, email response rates, and, and go from there. As it relates to the bold and italic and things like that, I could take it or leave it. If your email is abiding by a lot of these principles that we're talking about already, you're already ensuring that it's easy to read. 
And so the bold and italic and things that, you know, make something pop out are kind of superfluous to me at that point, because you've already optimized for uh, this email to be easy to read. So I already mentioned that the email should be roughly 50 to 100 words. That's a general best practice. I personally allow room for up to 125 if the personalization is really good. If I could figure out the right way to tie the USC alumnus story into Clary forecasting, that might take a little bit more real estate. So, okay, up to 125 if personalization is really good. But for templated general emails, 50 to 100 words, we've alluded to this already, but separate thoughts go on separate lines plenty of white space. And I know, Armand, I've seen you post about this before. When it's a block of text, nobody's going to read it. Like if your your information is buried, your call to action is buried in this block of text, you're pretty much guaranteeing that it's not digestible. It's not skimmable by the human eye and the human brain. So people in all likelihood are not going to read every word of your email. I'm sorry. I know you you poured over every single word that's in there, but guess what? People aren't going to read them. So you want your separate thoughts to go on separate lines so that when they skim that email, when, not if, they skim that email, they're getting the thrust of the message. They're getting the main points. Those are the types of things I think that are going to optimize your reply rate. You mentioned something that I want to make sure we don't brush over is you said, hey, for some of your other accounts uh, where you're sending like non-super personalized emails, right? One of the things that I struggle with is my guess is, you, like everyone else, you have some C-tier accounts. And I, I don't want to go in and tailor every single email for an HR specialist at a C-tier account, super below the line. But I do want to reach out to them because oftentimes it's a good wedge into the org. And so what are you doing for those folks? Are you doing persona-based generalized tailoring? Or maybe you should just tell me to tailor everything. I don't know. <laughs> it's the degree of tailoring, Armand, that is worth um, spending some time on here. And so again, I'll go back to this point about the firmographic personalization that you can do. And I think too few people, again, I'll, I'll reiterate this point, don't view firmographic personalization as quote unquote true personalization. They think it's not as valid for whatever reason. So my suggestion would be, you know, you probably have, I don't know how many uh, C tier accounts you have in your patch, but let's say you have 50 of them. Pop on 30 minutes of President's Club, listen to it. And in a spreadsheet, just go one by one and look at LinkedIn insights and see how many HR staff have they hired or fired in the last six months. Is it plus 20%, minus 15%? Just go and fill in that spreadsheet row by row. You're listening. You're really going to be listening to Nick and Armand as you're doing this more or less mindless work. But that then is the token that you can use in this templated email. And you need to now have two emails, one for if there's been uh, growth of some sort, or one, if there's been retraction of some sort, you need to make sure that your message makes sense for both of those scenarios. And then you fire off your emails to as many people as you want. Um, so that's the way to scale this kind of still tailored, but a very light touch tailoring in a way that's going to be um, actually going to resonate with the people that you're reaching out to. So how many different sequences is your team maintaining at any given point in time? Because my guess is it sounds like you have a couple different sequences for different buckets. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Armand. I think we have about 30,000. <laughs> we have too many. Definitely have too many. Um, but the way that we try and structure it is we try and have our above the line and below the line sequences by persona. So it doesn't it doesn't bloat our sequence count too much. I would argue we probably still have a few too many. But the way that we try and structure it is for our above the line sequences, these are um, folks that 
are going to be economic buyers or decision makers, or at the very least, they're going to be really powerful use case champions. They have some clout in the organization. And the sequence for that is really, it's not filled in at all. Uh, you know, the email templates that are in there are more or less blank. They're just reminders for what the right timing is for you to send your really personalized notes to them. And there's maybe a snippet or a line or two about, um, you know, if this is a sales leader above the line sequence, there's going to be a line or two about a challenge that a sales leader faces that you can write your email around. Um, but the point of the sequence is really one of ensuring that the timing of the sequence, call this day, LinkedIn this day, email this day, assuring that that timing is um, abided abided by. That's not the right word, whatever. Um, the below the line sequences are all templatized. As we've talked about the structure of a light personalization, semi-tailored first line, and then more or less stock templated second, third lines with the call to action. And the point of the below the line sequences, again, is to either do some fact finding on the company, understand more about their sales structure and their forecasting process and the things, the information that we would then use in the above the line personalized sequences, or it's to get some sort of meeting with them um, you know, for our, our sales team to give them a demo because we feel like they could just build some groundswell and, and help us with an evaluation. Um, so that's kind of the way that we do it. We have every persona that we care about. We have above the line and below the line. So two main sequences for every persona. All right, Kyle, this has been great. I've been I've been writing down like a madman stuff about email length and subject lines. And apparently I'm a sales leader now or an HR generalist, one of the two. But we got to move to our final question because we're running out of time here, Kyle. And the final question is the same one as the first time you were on the show, but hopefully you have a different answer. Um, we talked about a lot of things people should be doing related to their cold emails and general outbound outreach practices. But we got to talk about a bad habit. So the question for you is what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople doing that you think they need to kick because it's hurting them more than it's helping? The one thing I think salespeople need to stop doing, and this will not come as a surprise to you if you listen to the rest of this episode, the one thing they need to stop doing is just sending what's given to them and putting their hands up in the air and saying, oh, I don't control the emailing. You know, This comes from our marketing team or it comes from my manager. Woe is me. I'm just going to go and hit send on these things because, quote unquote, that's what I was hired to do. That is not what you were hired to do. You were hired because you have a brain and you need to use your brain. So stop not using your brain <laughs> and think strategically about how you can add value to the email sequences, the individual templates, all those sorts of things. You, Mr. or Mrs. Salesperson, are the closest person to your prospect. You're the one getting feedback every single day from the people that you're interacting with. Use that feedback to inform the way that you're messaging to them. Use your brain. And I promise you're going to enjoy your job more. You're going to add more value and you're going to get better results. Love it. Start using your brain, everybody. Catch you guys next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Cheers. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, Pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. 
Space Prospecting Tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. And if you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes.